You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 21. In fact, the entire chapter of Revelation 21, though, we'll be placing most of our focus on verses 1 through 9 of Revelation chapter 21. Well, I want to ask you this morning, how are your resolutions? Are you keeping up with them? Have you fallen off of them? Usually this point in the year is where I'm climbing back on the horse for the fourth or fifth time. I don't know why it is that way. It seems like, though, that every habit I've tried to make in my life has been just uh, a practice of fits and starts, fits and starts, on the horse, off the horse. Uh, You know, we read the Bible faithfully for a few days and then we fall off the horse. We keep the house clean for a few days and then things are kind of disorganized again. We get up early in the morning so that we can spend time with God for a few days and then suddenly we're struggling and it's just back and forth. You probably have the same experience and so let me just encourage you along with me. The encouragement that I need is to know that that's okay. You don't have to feel bad about that. That is just the way that it is. That is why there's grace. That is why there is repentance so that we can get back on the horse and keep moving forward. If you find at this point in the year, you've made lots of resolutions, but you're having a hard time keeping track of all of them. That's really the story of my life. Energetic start, bad follow through. Maybe it's time at this point to simplify a little bit. And if I could encourage you just to one resolution, it would be to read the Bible as faithfully as you can every day. We heard this encouragement even just this week from Tim Keller, encouraging Christians that hear his voice to make their ultimate aim to be in the Word of God. We want to be a church that's in the Word of God as well because we know that we need the Word of God. The Word of God contains the the words that we need. They are the words of heaven. And we need these words to get into our hearts. Today we have a wonderful opportunity in Revelation chapter 21 to hear those words of heaven because we see more and more at this point in the book as we're coming to an end of our coming hope of heaven. And what I think we need, perhaps most of all, that's always a dangerous thing to say because there's always things that we feel like we need most. But at this moment, I feel like in this point of the book, we need heaven and earth to come together. You know that every single person in here is somewhere on the spectrum between heavenly minded and earthly minded. We're all somewhere in there and we have to find the proper place. There are two extremes on the spectrum. We hear it in the kind of cliche. You've heard before that someone is, is, of, is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. That's one end of the spectrum, and that certainly can be true. It's possible for us to be so desirous of the the joys and the reliefs of heaven that we lose sight of the great calling of life in this world, of what God is doing here and now in and through us. Even the Apostle Paul felt that tension between the two, to be with Christ or yet to be here continuing to minister by grace the gospel and to fulfill the calling that God had given him. That's certainly on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is the opposite, to be so focused on this life 
that we are of no heavenly good, that we may not even give heaven much thought at all, or we, we may not think about the world to come. We may not think about the incredible truths and plans that God has revealed in his word, in particular, in the book of Revelation. We have to find our place in that spectrum so that we both have our eyes on heaven and yet our hands by God's grace at work on earth. We need those two things to come together. That's what I've been praying for as we've been approaching just this Sunday, is that as we look at this text, that God would do that in our hearts. And so let's see if he will over the coming days after we look at Revelation chapter 21, again, giving most of our focus to verses 1 through 9. And we want to see in this text three life-changing truths about the new world that God is preparing for us, for his people. The first truth that I'd like for us to see is that this new world that God is preparing, the one that is declared to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and in 22, what we're looking forward to when we talk about going to heaven or being in a better place first, it is a better place because it's a world, hear this, of divine presence. We begin this morning with what is the most important and really, I think, maybe the most difficult concept about heaven to properly value, that God's presence in heaven is the very best attribute. It's the most important, most beautiful, best thing that is happening or the best thing that is in heaven. It is God's presence. What we read here in this text is that God one day will renew the current earth and the skies. That's that's the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And he will renew them into a new one, full of unending and unhindered delights. Heaven is a place of delight. It's a place of happiness. It's a place of joy. It's a place of sort of of ease compared to what we're experiencing in this life. But what's most important about heaven is that it's the place of God's ultimate presence. And his present work there is what makes heaven heaven. It's not heaven just because of the delights or the things that are there. But it is heaven because God is there. Listen to what John says in Revelation 21 and think with gratitude. If you're in Christ, think with gratitude and anticipation of what we are looking forward to. He says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I had a wonderful picture just last night of this with Amy and Nathan sharing their vows and uniting as one, adorned. She was adorned for her husband, as we've all seen in other weddings of brides coming down the aisle And everyone's standing and giving their attention. And the the groom at the front receiving his bride with such anticipation. That's the picture that John is painting. He says in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this. 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. You hear the repetition over and over again of allowing this incredible truth of God's presence to wash over his readers. That's us. And in verse four, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. These are all things that the readers of of this book had, had come through that they're anticipating. We are anticipating. And we know even in this present moment of life, This life is full of pain and tears. Some of us may have shed tears this morning. You may have wiped away tears. You may be comforting pains as you got out of your car and walked into the building because that is what this life is. It is full of sorrow and pain. But here in this new place that God is preparing, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because those first things have passed away. But even as we read about those things, I find in my heart this deficiency, this weakness to value what I just said is the most important thing in heaven. Because as soon as we start talking about no pain and no tears and all the delights and the joys and the beauty as this chapter unfolds for us, I so quickly lose sight of God's presence. I just want those things. Heaven is going to be so great because it's full of these things. Why is it that his presence in heaven is such a difficult concept for us to value? Well, it's kind of like the thing that that lots of kids experience. It's kind of that classic episode of when dad has gone on a business trip and he comes home at the end of the week and as soon as he opens the door, all of the kids run to him. Dad's home! And they give the quick hug and they back up and they say, you can say it. What'd you bring me? What kind of trinket from the airport or, or what kind of, uh, of souvenir from wherever you have traveled have you brought to me? It is that classic experience that is just embedded in our hearts. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. First, the reality of God's divine presence is something simply beyond us. As fallen creatures, it is beyond us to really estimate what that means, to truly value it. No one, no one in this life, no one in this room has ever or ever until that day fully, rightly valued the hope of heaven as the place of God's presence. We have, because we are creatures and because we are sinners, this limited capacity to really rightly value everything about God. And in particular, the value of his presence and the presence that we will know in heaven. But I think there's another reason as well. And it's not one that's just buried in our nature. 
It's one that's buried in our practice. And because of our nature, we seem to have divorced, separated, cut apart from each other. God's favor and presence from his gifts. And we have looked for happiness in the things or the gifts alone. Now, there's an important word that I used, and I don't want you to miss it. And it is the word alone. Notice that it's not so much that enjoying his gifts is a bad thing and enjoying him is a good thing. Therefore, you should not seek for any joy in his gifts, only somehow in him, only somehow in thinking about him or his character qualities that's really a false dichotomy that sometimes we feel. Sometimes I feel that. But rather, what have we done? We have sought our happiness in those things alone without always seeing them as the product of his presence, as being, big word, inextricably linked to what it means to know God. We've separated the gifts from the giver. And therefore, what we need to do is to learn to enjoy his gifts, to magnify and maximize our enjoyment of his gifts as visitations of his grace and his favor, as gifts of his presence. Let's see if we can get our hearts around that as we look at this text and continue thinking about this world to come. That is what heaven will be like. It will be enjoying all of the gifts and delights that God has placed there, but we will be enjoying them because of him. Because with every delight and with every gift, we are reminded that we have those because he has drawn near to us. He has, from the foundation of the world, committed himself to us. He has, in Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, by his gift of faith in our hearts that brings us to him, united us to Christ so that we are ever with him. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And because he never leaves us and never forsakes us, and he's always with us, even in this moment, he's even in this room. He is in his presence constantly, endlessly, unceasingly, cheerfully giving you gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. It is an amazing reality to know the God who is the gift giver. Therefore, we don't need to to shun the gifts or shun the joy that comes with all of those good things he's given us to enjoy as though the only real way to worship God is to throw those things out and to love only the giver, but rather to love them both at the same time because of his presence. This is very similar to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy as he was preparing him for ministry in his first letter in chapter 6, verse 17. This is what Paul tells Timothy to preach to those who are rich, who have the most temptation to cling to the things of the world or the gifts that have been given to them. Listen to what he says. 
instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now, if we stop right there, what we might end up with is that kind of stoic misunderstanding that you should get rid of the gifts and all of the enjoyments that he brings to life, the common grace ones, the special grace ones, and only set your heart on God. But then that would leave us with this stoic way of living. It would leave us with a kind of Buddhism. We want to empty everything out that we can, but that's not what Paul says. He says, teach them not to set their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He tells Timothy that he should be instructing those who are rich, who know that they have lots of resources and lots of gifts in their lives, that they should make use of them to magnify the joy that they have in God because he is the giver. Not to set their hearts on them, but to set their hearts on him so that those gifts will do what they are intended to do, and that is produce joy. God glorifying joy. This is what heaven will be like. Heaven is a place of happiness. It is a place of utter enjoyment of God's unending good gifts in the very presence of the giver because he loves us and we love him. That's what heaven is. It's a beautiful thing. I need so much help to grasp this in the here and now because I think the Bible's clear. I think that Jesus was clear when he taught his disciples to pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. That these experiences, this reality that we will know fully in heaven may come down and touch our lives here. That we would have a similar dynamic at work in our enjoyment of God's good gifts. That we would recognize them, make the most of them, glorify him with them. And therefore we would set our hearts on being as happy in Christ as we possibly can. Now, we have set up a great opportunity for all of us to grow in this because in just two more weeks from now, we'll do Revelation 21 today, Revelation 21 next Sunday, and after that, we're in the book of Philippians, which is known as the Epistle of Joy in a sermon series called Connoisseurs of Happiness. We are going to work together as a church to use that wonderful little book of Philippians to maximize our view of Christ and the enjoyment of knowing him. I can't think of anything better as we continue into this new year, but we're reminded of these truths even here in Revelation because we see what heaven will be like. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. The first way that we can apply this text to our lives, this would be something for us to discuss in community groups this week, is that we would do this. Look forward to the many good gifts of God's presence in heaven, a place of unending delights. This is what we should be doing regularly in our personal devotion times, our, our quiet times, regularly in our lives, in both the, the high moments and the low moments, the good times and the bad times, for us to be thinking about, longing for what it will be like in heaven when we will know God and his delights fully. 
so that in this life, we might make even better use of those delights today. That we might enjoy them all the more. That, that his good gifts and his presence now by a spirit who is inside of us and his ongoing work in our lives and in the world would continually lift up our spirits, lift up our hope, lift up our joy so that we would be ever-changing people by having our minds on this incredible reality of heaven because it will be a world of divine presence. Now, I think also that our fuzzy outlook on heaven makes it hard to imagine this next truth about heaven. This is a truth that I really have always struggled and I assume always will until I get there to really value, similar to the the truth of God's divine presence, to rightly value it and appreciate what heaven will be like because God is there, not because there are things that I like there. And the next truth about this future world, this new world for God's people is that it will be a world of divine satisfaction. This again is a truth that I've had such a hard time grasping. Maybe it's because my view of heaven has been so fuzzy and continues to be. It's taking shape as I grow as a Christian. Maybe that's the same way it is for you. It's just hard to imagine what that will be like. My heart has never been fully satisfied. My heart has never been fully satisfied with God alone. I know that we all, I make boastful claims about that about loving God with all of my heart. I've never loved God with all of my heart. I've never been totally satisfied with him. One day we will, and it makes it hard to understand, but this is what heaven will be, a world of divine satisfaction. John records the Lord's words here. He says in verse five, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is an incredible statement describing for us as just small creatures trying to look, as we heard about in that responsive prayer, we're sort of like ants trying to get a grasp of the whole horizon, that he says, I am making all things new. He says, and he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. But when I hear those words, as as exciting as they are to me, I still struggle to know what that means. I'm making all things new. Again, I feel like an ant looking up at the horizon trying to take all of it in. I just can't do it. But I want to. What does it mean that he's making all things new? Does it mean that when we get there, the world will be clean Does it mean that all of the streets will be clean? There won't be any gum on the floor? There won't be coffee stains on the carpet? Is that what it means? Does it mean that all the windows will be clear and bright and there's nothing you could do even if you went up and made a face with your mouth against the window? It would still be clean when you pulled your sucker off of there? Does it mean that everything there is shiny? Like a new car, you know that new car shine where they've really waxed it up good. It's not had any raindrops on it, doesn't have any dirt on it, no fender benders. Everything is clean and shiny and new. Will it be like um, your favorite sweater 
or sweatpants, so they get a hole in them, and then you, you, you stitch it up, and you try to make it new, or you patch that hole. Is that what it will be like? I don't know the answer to exactly what that means, but I do know this. The buried in the statement I'm making all things new is the word satisfaction. Heaven is a place of divine satisfaction. For the first time in my life, when I awaken heaven, I will be satisfied. There'll be nothing missing. There'll be nothing gone. I won't be longing for something else. I won't be wanting just a little more time down on earth. If I could just watch my favorite show one more time, could I go see one more game? Could I enjoy just one more moment with my family or friends? There won't be any of that. As soon as we awaken heaven, total satisfaction, longings gone. Your heart will be full. And at least in part, that is what it means. I am making all things new. It will be a place of beauty for sure. If you look at verses 15 through 21, John really records all of these details trying to help us understand the beauty, and it is beautiful. He's envisioning an enormous, enormous place measured with a golden rod. It's accented with jasper and gold and glass and emeralds, sapphires, amethysts, everywhere. It's beautiful. So, of course, when he makes all things new, it will be beautiful. But there is something more than just beauty. Notice what he says in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, the statement, all things will be made new, really harkens back to that original state of our first parents in the garden before the fall. It is that place of ultimate happiness, ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. It is recognizing how that original state was undone by the fall. Think about what heaven will be like as a a place of divine satisfaction by looking back to what the fall has made life now. What happened when our first parents and we in them, because we sinned with them, they didn't sin, it's not their fault, it's our fault, that when we fell in the garden, what happened? Well, a bunch of things happened. Perhaps at the top of the list is that there became this spiritual separation from God. They are cast out of the garden. But all is part of God's redemptive plan. Nevertheless, there is this separation, this this pain. But in the new world to come, The satisfaction will come from being reunited, even as we've seen about his divine presence, reunited with him forever. In the fall came into Adam and Eve's world pain, suffering, shame, incredible shame, darkness, 
conflict that we feel even with each other. We've got so many things going for us and we still are in conflict. Longing. The fall brought longing into the world. Same longing that we read about earlier in the public reading of Scripture from Romans about the, the whole creation groaning and groaning like a woman in giving birth groaning for finally the day when things will be made new. But heaven will be a place of divine satisfaction because the separation from God is perfect unity with him. The pain of the fall is comfort in heaven. The suffering of this life is ultimate, perfect, unending health forevermore. The shame of this life is translated into Perfect, beautiful innocence because of what Christ has done for his people. The darkness of this world will be absolute light. It's so bright light that there doesn't even need to be a sun. That Jesus himself gives the world light in this new world for God's people. The conflict that we're feeling here will be perfect peace, perfect peace forevermore. There will be no one stepping on your toes and you won't be stepping on theirs. There will be no one sinning against you. There will be no disagreements. There will be no arguments. There will be no disappointments. There will be no false expectations. There'll be no downers, only uppers. Everything there will be a place of satisfaction and there will be no longing. Your heart. Is filled with longing. My heart is filled with longing. Every day, every day, I am longing. I'm longing for something that I don't have. Sometimes in sin, I'm, I'm longing for something I want and I shouldn't have. My heart is full of longing all the time. You cannot escape it, but you will because when you get there, you'll have no more longing. It'll be a place of ultimate perfect satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction is wrapped up in this text in the great inheritance of belonging to God. Listen to these words. Listen, listen, for real. Listen. Listen to these words. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of of the water of life, without cost, by grace alone. All of this is by grace. Verse seven, listen, the one who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God. But listen, what do you think? You've already looked at it because we have a screen. What do you think comes next? Does he say, I will be his God and he will be my servant? That would make total sense. The Bible talks about servants all over the place. We are servants. We're bond servants. Paul said that all the time, the lowest kind of servant, serving all the time. We will be ser- he will be my servant. Good. What about slave? I'll be his God and he will be my slave. Does that sound good to you? Well, depending on what you mean by that. Does he say, I will be his God? And he will be my worshiper. He doesn't. What does he say? I will be his God. And he will be my son. My daughter. 
both of them are envisioned here. He will be, they will be, my sons and daughters. That's ultimate satisfaction. Second application for this morning is that we would pursue our full satisfaction in knowing God and belonging to him as a son or daughter. Here's the, another one of those reminders. Man, we need like so many of them just to keep washing over us. It's that reminder that when it all boils down, though we are lots of different things to God, you're not just a servant. You're not a slave. You're not even just a worshiper. But in Christ, you're a son. You've been brought into covenant love as a daughter and to be united with him. But wow, that is, that is a truth that is fleeting. It's out the window in a moment. We need it to come back in over and over and over again that God has made us sons and daughters and he will keep us until the very end and satisfy our hearts forevermore. Next, I want you to see last that this world, this new world for God's people is a world of divine purity. Look at verses 9 through 14. Says then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city's laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. It goes on and on and on. But what stands out here in these last couple of verses of our immediate focus is that this place, it is, a, it is the place, the world of divine presence, the world of divine satisfaction, but it is also the world of divine purity. This is God's pure new world. In verse 8, he tells us, which we have incredible compassion and, and sorrow over, the cowardly, all of those among whom we were counted and would be apart from Christ with the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part is in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But then we have that picture that was just painted for us in those verses, beginning with verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
We're reminded here that this place is a place of purity. It's a place in which he has taken his bride and adorned her and, and, and cleansed her, that's us, and forgiven us by grace because of what Christ has done for us and has, has adorned us with, with a robe of righteousness that belongs to us and that makes us like him and that when we see him, we become like him. We become pure and, and, and ultimately, finally righteous. Our redemption has come. And therefore, this world is a pure new world. There was a social satirist named Aldous Huxley who wrote a novel in 1932 called Brave New World. It's a dystopian novel and it anticipates a huge scientific advancement in this world that he, that he imagines full of conditioning and genetic experimentation and psychic manipulation. It's a very scary place. That's why these kinds of stories are called dystopian novels. That word is, is an anti-utopia. You think about what we have read as we looked in Revelation about this period of tribulation in the world where everything is, is falling apart. There, <clears throat> there's, nothing, there's nothing that feels very happy about being in that place with the beast, the false prophet, the devil, the dragon, and all that comes with it. It's an anti-utopia. But it's all leading up to what we're reading about here, which is, which is a true utopia. Not a brave new world, but what we really need. A pure new world. All who refused, in verse 8, all the people in the world throughout all of history who refused God's change agenda in the world, are resigned to a lake of fire, the Bible calls the second death. We have been reading and hearing about that even last Sunday as we consider the ultimate judgment that will come upon the world before everything is made new again and we enjoy this new world as God's people. But the rest, those who by grace have come to Christ, they enter into the ultimate everlasting life with Christ in a pure new world. I think it's important that we keep this on our minds in a way that helps us anticipate and long for heaven while still being earthly good as the church. So imagine it this way, the way John tells us. Looking down at verses 22 through 27 as we come to a close, Capture this picture of what this pure new world is like. He says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Perfect presence, perfect unity for perfect worship. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations, all the different kinds of people, all people without distinction are brought into this new world by faith in Christ and they walk by its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night there. Imagine that. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean 
And no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The last application of this text is a clear one that comes up over and over again in Scripture. And it is said so clearly in these words, make your calling and election sure. When the Bible tells us to make our calling and election sure, it means that we are to stay close to Christ. It means that we are to look with God's help into our own hearts and to see that our hearts do in fact belong to Christ. Does your heart belong to him? Have you been united with him? Are you one of the people that have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and he is bringing you into this this new world because you are one of his people? Will make your calling and election sure. We make it sure by staying with him, staying with him to the very end, draw close to him, move into him ever more like him day by day by day. This is the constant wrestling of the Christian life. And friends, listen, if that is not what's happening in your life, If you are not staying close to him and day by day through little steps, these are little steps that we're taking. We're weak. But even then, little steps to be more and more like him because you're anticipating this new world as one of his people and you want him to be glorified and you want your longings to be met in him. If that is not happening for you, make your calling and election sure. It could be that you don't belong to him. If that's not happening in some way, for some of us in certain seasons, you look in your heart, it's hard to find it. It might be hiding somewhere, but but it's there. If you belong to Christ, the challenge of the word of God is to make our calling and election sure because we do not want to miss out on this new world that is with God forevermore. Perhaps you need to come to Christ and This could be the day of your salvation. You might be watching this online now or at another time, and that moment could be the moment of your salvation. We want it to be. We're praying that it will be. And if you sense that God is drawing you, either here or later, drawing you to himself, or he is doing a work and you need help and encouragement, we want to help and encourage. So let us know. Let us walk with you. Join with us. We have new member class coming when we can, we can learn more together about what it means to be the church and we can unify together and strengthen one another in weakness. But we can strengthen one another. This is the calling of our church. This is the calling of this moment is to come to Christ, make your calling and election sure and walk together with him. I want to invite you to stand now as we prepare our hearts to sing again and we thank God for what he's prepared for us and we pray that he would do this work among us wherever it needs to be done in all of our hearts to some respect because we need him to draw us closer. We'll pray for that now. Father, we we need you to do your drawing work among your people to strengthen us and to give us clearer vision of what it means to know you and to belong to you. Our hearts are so full of longing and you are so full of patience. My goodness. Every day you are working 
Every day you are ministering to us by your spirit. Every day you are holding out to us and, and working into us the satisfaction that only comes through you, through your ongoing gift of grace and the gifts that you continue to pour out upon us. We do pray today that, God, that you would make us happy, that you would satisfy our longings in this life, in this moment, and that we would, that we would revel in your goodness to us we know that's what it will be like in heaven and we need practice. So we pray you'd help us in that. Help us to look forward with a real longing that makes us earthly good, a real longing for this new world that you're preparing. And I pray God that it would give us hope. We need hope today. We need strength and we need help. And we give you thanks because you provide it. You provide it in Christ through your good news. And so we pray this in his good name. Amen. Amen.